Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. Today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and his efforts to water down the For the People Act, the deployment of thousands of U.S. troops to Afghanistan, the advance of the Taliban in that country and the related implications. And it's Friday, and that means it's time for another installment of the Red Spin Report. And of course, later in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to take your calls. But before we can move on, let's talk about this for the People Act and Joe Manchin. He said, I have made it crystal clear that I do not support the For the People Act. I have worked to eliminate the far-reaching aspects of that bill and amend the legislation to make sure our elections are fair, accessible, and secure. That's what Joe Manchin said. This is not a Republican railing against the voting right bill. This is Democratic Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, sounding like a Republican, because let's face it, Joe Manchin is a Republican, and he and this spectacle with this bill are yet another example of why these parties represent two wings of the same evil bird. And I think it's also another one of those key examples into how white supremacy works in this country outside of Klan robes and neo-Nazis. In 1966, Kwame Ture, then still called Stokely Carmichael, said in a speech entitled Black Power, I knew that I could vote and that wasn't a privilege. It was my right. Every time I tried, I was shot killed or jailed, beaten or economically deprived. So somebody had to write a bill for white people to tell them when a black man comes to vote, don't bother him. That bill, again, was for white people, not for black people. I think this is still true. The vaunted U.S. Constitution guarantees every citizen the right to vote, but everyone wasn't citizens when that hallowed document was crafted. Rich, old, land-owning white men were writing rules for themselves and those like them to maintain power. They weren't thinking about anyone else. So an amendment to that document had to be added to define who citizens were so more than just rich, old, white men could decide who runs things in this country, ostensibly. But that's not how it has ever worked. Despite the Constitution and amendments and the original voting acts, and that won't change when this one, if it passes, does pass either. Because by and large, rich white men still control the levers of power in this country. And a voting rights bill really isn't going to fix that if the people who are supposed to enforce the law just, I don't know, won't. Now, Manchin said, of course, that he opposes the bill. He said that he thinks the measures in the bill go way too far. He's especially opposed to proposals in the original bill that he said would politicize the Federal Election Commission, which is very telling because it speaks to the real reason Joe Manchin opposes this bill, and honestly, Republicans too, and that is money. 
You see, the Federal Election Commission enforces federal campaign finance laws, including monitoring donation prohibitions, and it limits and oversees public funding for presidential campaigns. The Federal Elections Commission, or the FEC, is governed by a body of six commissioners who decide on the enforcement of regulations. Currently, the commissioners side with the political parties, three for the GOP, three for the Democrats. So the FEC is already politicized to the point of gridlock so bad that it is a completely useless agency in regard to actually enforcing election laws, which is a significant reason nothing ever changes with campaign finance. The original version of the For the People Act would have changed the way the FEC operates by changing the total number of commissioners from an even number to an odd number, eliminating the threat of a stalemate in regulatory decision-making. But Manchin didn't want that, because then how could he continue to get his millions from corporate donors? The stalemate at the FEC has been so bad that the New York Times reports that for more than a decade, Democrats who wanted more stringent enforcement of election laws and transparency measures have been routinely routed by the three Republican commissioners. Democrats have complained bitterly that Republicans have weaponized the commission's bipartisan structure. There's that word again. And see how it's never used in a positive context because bipartisanship is not a good thing for you and me. But the Democrats have claimed that the Republicans have turned the FEC into a toothless do-nothing bureau. So now the Democrats are using the same rules, refusing to vote for anything the Republican-aligned commissioners want, passed in an effort to further the gridlock and compel federal courts to make the decisions on enforcing federal election law instead. Oh, you thought a bill just got passed and everybody obeyed the law. That's not ever how it has worked in this country. But the Democratic commissioners also hope that leaving the cases open by not voting with the other commissioners would spur compromise from the GOP commissioners. And I swear, the Democrats and their ridiculous belief that they can force compromise with people who built a modern political party off the strategies of Paul Weyrich, who famously said that he didn't want everyone to vote and that elections are not won by a majority of the people, these people are tiring. Paul Ryrick, the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation and a strategist for the Republican Party, Ryrick was sadly correct when he said that elections never have been won by the majority of the people in this country because that's the way it was designed to be by rich white men who only wanted rich white men and those who aligned themselves with rich white men to decide the fate of all of us. So the connection of wealth to politics and voting in particular remains the key driver behind politics. And that is the same in the case with Joe Manchin's opposition to the original For the People Act. It's the same thing. It's about money. He wasn't really concerned about any weak voter ID requirements or the original bill not making elections accessible or secure. Manchin didn't like the changes proposed to the Federal Election Commission, which, if carried through, would have made it harder for him to rake in millions from corporate donors. 
Of course, Republicans like Ted Cruz, well, okay, all of them oppose the bill because they really don't want everyone to vote, just like Paul Weyrich said. But they're doing their obvious shenanigans. I think it's important to understand that Democrats like Manchin are just as dangerous as the GOP because they are willing to sacrifice the right for working class and poor black, brown and indigenous people to vote so they can keep raking in money from the corporate interests that they actually work for. And guess who most of them are? Old, rich, white men. Okay, there's some rich white women thrown in there, but you know what I mean. Kwame Ture said in the same 1966 speech on black power, quote, and the question is, how are white people who call themselves activists ready to start to move into the white communities to build new political institutions to destroy the old ones that we have so that we can start then to build a new world? This country is uncivilized. It needs to be civilized. Joe Manchin and all politicians like him, but especially Democrats, are uncivilized. And I'm asking like Kwame Ture did, what are white activists going to do about organizing against white people like Joe Manchin in your communities to destroy the political institutions that they built as they exist to civilize this country and to build a new and better world than the one they've created? The clock is ticking. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we are your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we are going to keep the movement moving on, and we are happy to be joined by Joel Siegel, National Director of Justice Action Mobilization Network, to continue this conversation about the voting rights bill and Joe Manchin's machinations, as it were. Joel, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. And although I don't know if it is a happy Friday after (laughs) reading uh, Joe Manchin and what he's done, really, to the Senate version of the voting rights bill, the For the People Act. Now, it's being reported that the Senate did take a step toward voting rights legislation with advancing the For the People Act out of committee uh, from the Rules Committee. And the vote was supposed to give Senate Republicans a chance to support the process of moving forward or to demonstrate to Senator Joe Manchin, the alleged Democrat from West Virginia, that, you know, the Republicans really didn't care. But I, I guess... I guess Democrats didn't realize that Joe Manchin really isn't a Democrat and he doesn't like voting rights as much as Republicans don't like voting rights. Or I, I don't know. What, what is your take on Manchin's uh, efforts to water down this piece of legislation? It's a great question. Well, I mean, I think he waters everything down. He's from a state that voted overwhelmingly, about 78 percent or 70 percent for Trump. He's um, very much involved with, you know, the Republican donor machine, right? So he, he in his mind, he's, he walks this tightrope where if he goes too much to the progressive side, he might make more enemies within West Virginia and also with his donor, you know, his, his donors. Um, 
But at the same time, what, what Nancy did do, which is actually positive, he has come up with his own version of the, um, you know, of the Voting Rights Act that they were supposed to pass. And that is the bill that will be passed when they come back from recess. So there will be a voting rights bill passed, I think, in September. Then I do think they've got to bring up the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, because that's something that they could pass, because I know Manchin actually supports that in cinema. So, you know, you know, the larger question is, why did Ted Cruz not allow unanimous consent to vote on the bill? And that's because we all know why, because as I just said on earlier in your broadcast on another program, that the Republican Party is the most dangerous organization in the world. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe that climate change is real. They think that, you know, it's a hoax, you know, uh, COVID-19, you know, wearing a mask. But they don't believe in government. And they're going to they just believe in giving tax cuts to the wealthy and making sure that black people and brown people can't vote because they want to remain in power. So we're moving, we're moving towards authoritarianism, and this is just another step in that direction, right? So what has to happen? Manchin, whatever his bill is, that has to get passed. That'll be, that's going to be passed. Mm. It'll, be, it'll be passed in September. So, so let, me, let me ask you, Joel, the points of contention that Joe Manchin had with this bill. And, and I always like to focus on him because I, I always say, you know, the Republicans are easy, right? You know— Dealing with their obfuscation and, you know, their putting roadblocks into the move toward an actual democracy in this country, which we really do not have, I think they're easy because they they make very plain that they don't want everyone to participate in this democracy. And I like to remind people, especially that Paul Weyrich, who is a a venerated strategist of the uh, GOP and architect of uh, the modern GOP, arguably and certainly one of the co-founders of the Heritage Foundation, said that I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of the people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. Um, And as despicable as that is, and he went on to say, as a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections uh, quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. As despicable as that was, he was actually telling the truth about how voting has always worked in this country Everyone was never allowed to vote. So that's, you know, it's easy to pick apart the the GOP arguments because I think they're kind of obvious. But how do you frame Manchin opposing, uh, uh, you know, measures to strike down voter ID laws? I mean, Manchin said that he supports common sense voter ID, uh, ID laws, which would require voters in all 50 states to show an ID, although he kind of made it sound okay by saying, you know, it doesn't really have to be a photo ID in order to vote. I mean, and then he said that the original uh, For the People Act was far reaching and and it was uh, uh, he the things that he were were proposing would uh, ensure elections that were accessible and, uh, you know, uh, secure. What about this original For the People Act was too much for Joe Manchin? Well, that, that's the million-dollar question. By the way, I, I love your—you uh, you were born to be a broadcaster. Uh, your, your voice is uh, one of the best—and I've been doing this for 37 years, but your voice is one of the best voices I, I've ever heard. Uh, and you're so unbelievably 
intelligent. This is an honor to be on your show. Um, Manchin, what, yeah, I mean that. If, Manchin, if you look at what he opposed, that the key to looking in, into a politician's mind, what did you support and what do you oppose? I believe that one of the um, most important provisions of, of the bill um, is um, publicly financed campaign. Everybody knows that money has influence in politics. He, 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 he opposes things that help him the most. It's a very interesting. Um, he would benefit from publicly financed campaigns because he wouldn't have to spend so much time raising money from the Republican Party, which influences his, you know, his, his thinking. But he's what's called a blue dog Democrat. You know, when I worked in Congress, for, I worked there for 13 years. You always had this you know, friction between the Blue Dogs and the Progressive Caucus and Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus. He's a Blue Dog, and he'll say silly things like uh, the infrastructure bill is going to aggravate inflation. No, it's not. That's not even based on fact. He, he, may have, he may think that, but it's not based on any macroeconomic analysis. But the one question that we have to ask your listening audience is, why are we going to allow one Blue Dog Democrat to determine the fate of democracy for America. So, you know, we're going to have to have a national discussion about what to do with Manchin in the Democratic Party and progressives like myself who work with the Democratic Party because one person should not have this much power. And he loves it. He loves the power. But his version of the voting rights uh, bill is going to get passed in September. That's Mm. what's going to happen. Now, I have to thank you, by the way. Uh, I, I just really enjoy the this job, and I really enjoy learning things, and I, and I am honored to have be having this conversation with you, you know, because I really love that you brought up the issue that I think the corporate media and most people looking at this bill and whether it will be passed or not in voting rights and democracy in general are missing, that this is really about money. This is really about campaign yep. finance reform. So, Joel, well, what is the connection between the Voting Rights Act and campaign finance reform, which I don't think people really understand very well in this country beyond Citizens United was passed, uh, corporations mm-hmm. believe that they are people, and dark money influences elections and corporations can buy politicians, basically. Um, what, what, what is the connection between campaign finance reform and, and this Voting Rights Act? You know what? I, I believe in being honest, candid. So when I started working for Con- John Conyers, who I, I love this guy so much, you know, civil rights icon, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, the dean of the Congress, um, loved it, you know, in Detroit and across the, you know, the nation, if not the world. But I remember my, the first few months we, on, our, on our lunch breaks, we would go to the DNC and raise money. And I, I, got, I, didn't, I didn't go to the Congress to raise money. I went to the Congress to get universal health care passed, single-payer Medicare for all, jobs for all. I wrote that bill, a jobs guarantee. I can go on and on. So I said to Mr. Conyers, um, I, you know, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. We're sitting here raising all this money, and, you know, we should be doing the work of, of the people of Detroit. And he agreed with me. And I remember one member of Congress said, Joel, if I had known I had to spend all this time raising money, I would have never run. The, the real problem with campaign finance reform issues is that members of Congress are spending at least 40 to 50 to 60, sometimes 70 percent of their time raising money 
when they should be working on legislation and holding town hall meetings and helping their constituents. With publicly financed campaigns like they have in every other country, but here, a lot of the money that you would need to run your campaign would be provided through a very modest tax on the American people. Um, you know, it's not really clear where that money, I guess it would probably be larger corporations with people making over $450,000. And then clearly, uh, raising money, and once you get that money, it's going to influence how you vote. I remember there was a member of the Congressional Black Caucus who I, remains nameless, and I had written a bill to end homelessness. So hopefully it'll be introduced again in the next few months. And I, so I was trying to get his support on the bill. He said, Joel, I can't support your bill because of how you're going to pay for it. And it was a stock and bond transaction tax, that, you know, and uh, very modest and some corporate you know, tax increases because that's going to impact my constituents. What he was saying was it would impact his donors. Mm. You see? Mm-hmm. So if you have to raise, if you're a member of Congress and you're in the Senate, you have to raise like 20 to $30 million every six years. So I want you to think about that. If you're running in the House at least 10 to $15 million just to be competitive, that's absurd. You can spend all your time raising the money every two years or every six years instead of doing legal work and doing, you know, writing legislation and meeting with your constituents. So we're being held. And, and that's and I'll close by saying I would say 80 percent of that money goes to TV commercials, which ought to be free. They should just give tax uh, tax breaks to, the, to these broadcast companies. So we have like four broadcast companies holding the entire country hostage because of these millions of dollars they spend on ads, which often have no influence on, you know, the electorate. So this is, this is insane. That's all we need under our own progressive unity coalition to fight back. That's what I'm working on right now. Yeah, you know, a couple of things, uh, just uh, an, an, an immeasurable amount of honor to John Conyers, who oh, yeah. for, what, 30, 40 years pushed 40 years, H.R. 40, the Commission to yeah. Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act, uh, just uh, all by himself. He was the lone person right. uh, in the House for years, That's and now right. it's become, you know, a, a popular thing, and it's gained the support that it, it's needed. Uh, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee has taken up the charge, and and that's wonderful, but just mad amount of respect for uh, John Conyers from the great city of Detroit. Um, you know, I, I can't help but ask, Joel, what does this mean for the 2020 election? Because, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think that this bill that Manchin pared down will be passed. And and I hate to say it. Yeah, it's 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 not what is needed, but something needs to be done. And, and politically, I think those are the kinds of arguments that happen all the time. The reality of what people need to do in organizing in the streets is something entirely different, I believe. Um, and this new bill is it's going to, you know, maintain a lot of the original legislation, but it yes, will it also, yeah. you know, it, it will also include some things that that are not uh, that are not conducive to democracy. Because, you know, how do you say that you have a government that's of the people, for the people and by the people when the people literally can't participate in the process, either by contributing to a a candidate that they want, helping them to raise money for their campaign fees, because 
The corporations and rich people who are overwhelmingly conservative in this country have a lock on campaign contributions, and there's no legal apparatus to keep them from throwing everything in the kitchen sink at them to buy ads and all of this kind of thing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have all of these additional hurdles put in place to keep people physically from getting to the polls. People have to, you know, obtain an identification to vote. People have to uh, travel to uh, farther distances because there are fewer polls that are open. People that they can't have mail-in voting, you know, that kind of thing. So with that reality that there are still going to be these roadblocks in place for people that Republicans have implemented across the country and the states that might not be addressed by this this bill. And the campaign finance realities are not going to be addressed by the Federal Elections Commission because of Manchin's paring down this bill, targeting that uh, aspect of the bill in particular. What does this mean for 2022 for the Democrats when people realize, hey, it is just as hard for me to vote now as it was in the last election? That's exactly right. Um I'm working on a project right now called the Georgia Miracle with uh, the, the leaders in Georgia. There were um, 19 NAACPs uh, in, in 19 counties that got the black vote, especially in the rural area, and the Southwest um, Georgia Organizing Project. And what we're doing is we've interviewed 40 of the leaders who got the vote out, which is the only reason why Warnock and Ossoff won, and Biden, of course. And we're going to replicate that, that same Thing they did, and and you know, even though we are nonpartisan, we're going to replicate that in the swing states. We're writing a book about it. We're doing a documentary. The only way we can start winning elections is really if Democrats are passing legislation that gives someone a reason to want to vote. Whether it's the new tax credits, right, the child tax credit, the fact that people got the fourteen hundred dollars, the fact that roads and bridges are going to be rebuilt, the fact that. They might lower the Medicare age, the fact that Medicare could cover, you know, hearing aids, you know, glasses, right? Um, the lowering of prescription drugs. So if they don't show that they've done something for the people, you're exactly right. People ain't going to come out and vote. But reason why we're in a different time period right now, why people have to vote, even if, you know, things aren't perfect in terms of what got passed, is we've only got about 10 years to survive climate change. Mm. So if we get if we get Republicans who I said on the show the most dangerous party in the world who think it's a hoax they want to keep burning fossil fuels and destroy civilization they will block they are going to block any legislation to transition us to 100% cleanable energy or Medicare for all or even they probably destroy Obamacare and the other thing they'll do is they'll move us closer to authoritarianism because the new Republican Party is authoritarian by its nature. So it will do everything it can to stop any kind of Jim Crow, what I call the new Confederacy states that really want to, you know, they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in the Constitution. They believe in staying in power at all costs. Well, how do you do that? You make sure that black people can't vote and students, but mainly black people. The only way to mitigate this, we have to have a united progressive movement that works in the streets and in the suites because there's just too much at stake. Are we going to move towards authoritarianism? Yes. If we don't, if we don't, we're not careful about who's being elected on the state and, and congressional level. Are we going to get people who, you know, deny um, climate change? Yes. 
They're going to be against, you know, the New Deal type Roosevelt program. Yes. So we got to care. We're going to get we're going to get something much much worse than we've ever seen. We think Ronald Reagan was bad. Uh, wait until these new members of Congress get elected who are from the far right authoritarian QAnon, you know, uh, position. Mm. It's a serious situation we're in, man. Democracy is threatened now. Yeah, that is absolutely not an understatement with the Republicans uh, saying that they are working on locking in a decade of power and knowing <laughs> that we only have about 10 years left before we all begin to experience the effects of catastrophic climate change. We've got a lot of work to do, but we are out of time. And we want to thank Joel Siegel so much for joining us. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Jackie Lupon, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupemont, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the deployment of thousands of U.S. troops to Afghanistan, the advance of the Taliban in the country, and the implications surrounding all of that. For this discussion, we're joined by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jackie. So the U.S. State Department has ordered the evacuation of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan in light of the security concerns, is what they're calling it, being posed by the increasing control of the Taliban. And the Department of Defense revealed just yesterday that it will be sending approximately 3,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan as a part of the effort to assist the departure of diplomats and other American civilians in the country. But it's also been reported that 3,000 troops would be deployed to the Hamid Karzai International Airport over the next few days, but that a reserve force of 3,500 to 4,000 will stage out of Kuwait. Now, that sounds like around 7,500 troops to me, not 3,000. But a U.S. Uh, State Department official goes on to say that uh, they're anticipating the possibility of undertaking airlift measures in order to hasten the withdrawal procedures for diplomats and applicants for the newly launched visa process in Afghanistan. Now, Dr. Desai this sounds ominously a lot like Saigon to me, Absolutely. but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this whole development. I mean, analogies with Saigon are all over the newspaper mm. today, and, and, and with, with reason. The United States, 46 years after it evacuated Saigon in such an ignominious fashion, is now backed in a position where it is having to do the same against an adversary that was in many ways is considerably less formidable. So this is a really, really low point in the history of American power. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, have try to have any sympathy for the U.S. military because none is needed. But I mean, again, your point about uh, the United States military with all of the money that is poured into the military apparatus once again could not overcome an adversary that was clearly not technologically matched, not not physically matched. So, you know, other than not needing to be in Afghanistan in the first place, what was the the problem with the United States and and why couldn't they really have ended this conflict a lot sooner when it was clear years and years ago that it wouldn't be won? Absolutely. So, so first of all, let me just say to overall frame it, this is really a, an example, a very stunning example of the contradictions of American imperialism. Because first of all, you have to, it was very clear, even as early as 2005, 2006, that basically the Americans were not going to win. But of course, the Americans say one thing, the, the alleged uh, the Americans say they are in Afghanistan to find Osama bin Laden. They are in Afghanistan to save Afghan women. They are in Afghanistan to pursue democracy and whatever, whatever. But in reality, the real reasons are something completely different. As we know, going back to 2001, when the Americans invaded Afghanistan, there were loads of reports coming out about how their real motives were to try to secure Afghanistan so that they could create or build a pipeline to tap uh, Central Asian oil and bring it to world markets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. On top of that, every time the Americans go to war, it's never really about the stated ob- stated objectives. It's always about, uh, in addition to such. Um, Covert objectives is also about essentially feeding the military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex doesn't care if the Americans win a war or lose a war so long as they manage to produce and sell more and more arms, more and more military and occupation-related services, and so on. And remember, this military-industrial complex is not just the arms manufacturers and the Pentagon. Today, there is a vast jungle and undergrowth of contractors that are uh, get loads and loads of very juicy contracts that, you know, of course, being military, nobody asks questions about prices, etc. So the American, you know, people often cite American military spending as a symbol of American military power. I would say that given this reality is often the opposite. The Americans spend enormous quantities of money on their military, but what do they have to show for it? There has been not a single war that it has fought since 1945, in which it can be said to have won an unequivocal victory, unless you count a sort of 800-pound gorilla versus tiny little mouse situation like Grenada. I mean, if you have to look to Grenada to count your military successes, you've got a big problem. Mm. So this is the situation. So the Americans fight wars for reasons that are not only covert, but they are quite mixed. They, they say they want to win wars, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is to provide an outlet for the vast military-industrial complex, you know. So no wonder they don't win. Uh, and now what's happening for President Biden is that, you see, I mean, this is an, another really interesting thing. So, of course, the war has been so unpopular that President Obama was elected to bring an end to it. He didn't. President Trump was elected to bring an end to it. He didn't. Uh, President Biden is now finally forced to admit, given the situation the United States is in, both in financial terms, economic terms, as well as in military terms, okay, bring it back. You know, in many ways, I've 
argue that the Trump administration and the Biden administration seem increasingly like a single administration pursuing the same policy. So the Trump administration created the talks with Afghanistan, uh, with the Taliban rather, in order to end the occupation. And the Trump, uh, then the Biden administration, rather than doing anything different, which is what everybody expected him to do, he has advanced the withdrawal. He said, OK, we're going to withdraw by 11 September. But what he didn't bargain on is that the Taliban would take over Afghanistan with such rapidity that they have to scramble out of that out of their well before even that advanced deadline. So essentially, we're back to the Saigon-like situation where the Americans have to scramble to get their personnel out. And mm. uh, that's it. Yeah. You know, in, in, even from the, the Biden administration, they say that this is actually not even a full evacuation, that the U.S. embassy will remain open at its current location. But what they're really not telling people, of course, they wouldn't, is that they are in talks with the Taliban, the same entity that they claim they were fighting this war to stop, asking the Taliban to promise not to attack the embassy at the same time that they are trying to secure exit strategies for not just the embassy officials and, and 1,400 U.S. nationals, but also, and I find this particularly onerous, uh, Dr. Desai, but I wonder about your opinions on it, Afghan nationals who were assisting the U.S. government, the U.S. military throughout the conflict. I, I just feel like when the Biden administration says that we're not abandoning Afghanistan, but we're going to make sure that we airlift a bunch of people who helped us fight a war in their country, but we're just not going to do anything to fix anything that we broke that's affecting everyone who's left. I think that is abandoning the country. But but what are your thoughts on that particular aspect? Of I think it's absolutely abandoning the country. And what's more, you are abandoning the country, which you have done everything in your power to undermine. Because what has the what have the Americans done? They have first of all, um, uh, 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 they have been unable to subdue the, the forces that they claim to have want to subdue. They have been unable to create and stabilize the government, so that the government of Hamid Karzai and then Ashraf. Honey have been uh, deeply illegitimate, corrupt, and and that that's you see the Taliban are not necessarily fighting to win all the cities that they have won. In most cases, the soldiers and the, even some of the population are coming over to the Taliban side because they are so disgusted with the central government in Kabul. So in that sense, they are really leaving the place in a huge mess, and the very. You see, the other thing is that, okay, so they have spent uh, uh, billions and trillions of dollars training Afghan, the Afghan army. First of all, the, the Afghan army has proved completely unable to hold any city of, uh, of note. So, and, and as we know now, in Washington itself, there is a leak in Washington saying that Kabul will fall in months. Indeed, it may even fall in weeks, which is why the Biden administration is scrambling to get Americans out. Now, in this context, yeah, they are going to give, you know, they're making big fanfare out of giving visas to people, um, you know, to a small number of interpreters and such like people. But the fact of the matter is that they're leaving bulk of the people in Afghanistan without anything, without any proper security. And what's more, whatever they are doing as you rightly pointed out, in the talks in Qatar has nothing to do with creating a stable Afghanistan and everything to do with simply ensuring that American interests 
are met. So the Afghan people are bound to see this as a great betrayal on the part of the Americans. I mean, if you're sitting down and talking to a force, then you do not continue to demonize them. Because the perp, what does the demonization do? It divides Afghan society further. If, you are fi- if you're finally admitting that you've got to talk to the, uh, to the Taliban, then you are also admitting that they have some force, they have some holding power, they have some legitimacy, and they have to be treated as such. And you have to remember one other ironic thing. The Taliban are the product of the very mujahideen that the Reagan administration had uh, funded and encouraged and, and created in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. So in many ways, this is like coming back full circle, mm-hmm. right? So American motive, there is nothing honorable about American motivations. There is nothing efficient or purposive about American actions. And now the Americans are themselves having to pay the price. And this means that, you know, every president since 1975 has sought to try and undo the Vietnam syndrome. This humiliation that the Americans suffered, none of them have succeeded. And the reason is, for the reasons are uh, among those that I gave you, which is that Americans fight wars not in order to even take and hold territory. They are fighting wars because they have a giant military establishment. Yeah, I'm so glad that you raised the history of the Mujahideen and the fact that this is the United States uh, using and abandoning the Afghan people twice in the history in in, in what, right. 40, 50 years. Uh, so, you know, then the last minute or so, uh, Dr. Desai, these 3000 troops or you know, 6,500 or 7,000 troops, however many there are, Mm -hmm. really are, that are going to be on the ground in Afghanistan. Do they stay? Do they ever leave? Is this just another cover for the Biden administration to say, oh, we need to keep these troops here to protect uh, the next city from falling to the Taliban and from the reemergence of al-Qaeda, which is also the narrative coming out of Washington? Absolutely. Let let me make two quick points. Number one, before I forget, we also have to remember that the United States not only created the Taliban out of the Mujahideen, that is to say by fostering the Mujahideen, created the Taliban, but in the late 90s, they were quite happy to encourage the Taliban takeover of the country, thinking that once the Taliban stabilize Afghanistan, they will be able to build that pipeline. Okay, so that's the first thing. Secondly, precisely for this reason, and remember also there's another big element of the piece of the puzzle here which we haven't even mentioned. The United States is doing everything in its power to do down China. Afghanistan actually shares a tiny, tiny, tiny border with China. And the U.S. would like to keep a presence in Afghanistan in order to be able to mount such operations. The question is whether it will be able to do so or not. It depends. We will see how. But certainly the U.S. intends that. So even before the Biden administration had uh, uh, declared that this withdrawal, or rather even before this, this present scramble when the Taliban are taking city after city and is hastening the departure of the Americans, even before then the Americans had said that they're going to withdraw all the troops, but they're going to retain X number of troops in order to protect the embassy, etc. And then on top of that, of course, the official presence of officially recognized American troops is only one part of any American presence. There are two other huge parts of it. Number one, there are the 
vast army of contractors and mercenaries. Let's call them what they are because that's what they are. Uh, so these contractors and mercenaries will remain there. They don't have to be talked about you know, publicly in the press because they're not officially American troops, but they will do a lot of things that the American government wants them to do. And, of course, there is a secret CIA-style presence there as well. So in these ways, the Americans will probably likely, of course, we'll see how things pan out now because we don't know exactly what the situation is between what the relations are between the Taliban and the U.S. administration. If the Taliban were to take Kabul, will the Americans be able to keep any operatives there? We don't know. We'll have to see. But... The thing is that certainly if the Americans can, they will want to because that Afghanistan will be a staging post for creating mischief in China, particularly via Xinjiang. We know that the um, U.S. administration has been supporting this uh, uh, so-called uh, 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 freedom movement of the Uyghurs, etc., uh, just as once they, of course, supported the Mujahideen. So this is, again... Same old story. The Americans are up to their gills. The American administration, rather, every American administration since the last many decades has been up to its gills in involvement with the very Islamic terrorism that it claims to fight. Mm. It's the, the, the same old story that is new again. And certainly we will not see the end of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But we are out of time and we want to thank Dr. Radhika Desai so much for joining us. You are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. It's Friday, so it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jackie, glad to be back. Absolutely glad to have you because, Nate, I watched the Malice at the Palace documentary the other night, and I remember this happened, you know, happening 17 years ago. I watched it. I watched that game. Uh, I was a much bigger basketball fan then than I am now, and I knew there was more to that story than what was propagated by the media days after. But that documentary, I think, was explosive and really exposed the lengths to which, number one, fans and and owners believe that they own these players and have a right to do whatever they want because they bought a season ticket. But also the way the media is quick to demonize young black men in sports when they don't behave the way that they, you know, allegedly should. So I, I, I don't know. I, I'm wondering what your perspective is on this documentary and the things that it exposed about sports culture in regard to black men, black athletes in particular. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me was like you just looking at the montage of like all the media reactions on the Talking Head Network, CNN, MSNBC down the line. You see a young Stephen A. Smith on MSNBC back in the day, but Aaron Brown on CNN. Honestly, I don't. I forgot that guy was actually like a commentator with the show. Mind blowing that that guy actually was uh, on primetime for so long. But just calling everyone thugs, 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 and we now that's kind of got a little stigma to it, right? BLM, a lot of activist movements have like made sure that. You know, paint that and in, in, as an epithet, uh, sort of like because we know what people are saying when they say that. Um, that was just recycled, and what we really learned from the from the documentary, and I mean, I already knew, but it's like bringing it to a mass level. It's important because they edited the footage. What you saw on ESPN and and the uh, what you saw even during the game, right, was not the whole story um, at all. Um, it didn't in in order to craft that narrative that. These are out of control players. Let's not forget Ron Artest is someone. If you go back and watch the 2019 documentary about him growing up in Queensbridge and kind of know his story, is someone who admittedly is like you know has mental health issues and kind of like issues with balancing himself and whatnot. And um, you know that's all devoid of that, of course. But like the way it was covered, it fits so much within this pattern of like again fans being the ones that are there spending so much money and therefore have a right to the kind of experience that they want to consume without any kind of interference from, you know, the, the players, from the entertainers. And, you know, it's like they're, they're objects instead of subjects in the minds of like the spectators. It's like, there's a gaze on them and and, an idea that, again, the trope of like being grateful, right? The, The idea that, you know, you shut up, you know, even the NBA, when they, you know, Drop the suspensions on these players like Ron Artest for the whole season, Stephen Jackson, 30 games, Jermaine O'Neal, 25, it's ultimately reduced. They uh, it was very clear that, uh, you know, they were not allowed to talk about it at all. And then there was this you know, insane. You think of all the crimes that happened in this country, real crime, like, you know, people like victims of sexual assault, you know, people that are, you know, actually, you know, the, the murders and and all sorts of things like that that don't get as much attention from law enforcement in terms of actually, you know, sustained investigative work. But for some reason, this was top of the priority line in terms of all these resources. And I thought the prosecutor actually came out pretty well because he was like, you know, wasn't really the biggest fan of it. And he took heat actually for, um, look at say, making a point. They're like, no, the fans need to be like held account, account of this uh, every bit as much, if not more maybe. And he ruled that Jermaine O'Neal was acting in self-defense to the, uh, chagrin of that fan who was just literally walking out on the court with a closed fist and then right. has the audacity to act as if like, you know, Oh, I, I, this is totally unfair. So yeah, it's just, none of that was brought up originally. Right. And that's sort of what this documentary's done for us here. And uh, it's important. Yeah. I mean, it was wild because I think I remember like watching that game and, and saying like, okay, I wouldn't have been, I, I would have said something to Ron Artest as as a coach, like in the locker room for laying down on the scores table, right? But right. but when the beer was thrown at him or on him, because let's be clear, the beer wasn't thrown at him. It, he was hit with it while mm-hmm. he was laying down on the table, minding his business, you know, for for whatever reason. It is true, you know. At the at the time, it's it, and it's wild, you know, Nate that. We, we have a better understanding of of mental health challenges like depression and anxiety just 17 years later than we did then. It's, it's wild how how fast consciousness and understanding 
uh, grows when people start advocating for themselves, which I think Ron Artest did with that mm-hmm. documentary. But, you know, it was wild seeing in this documentary, Malice at the Palace, how the fan that threw the beer and the fan who came out on the court with his fist clenched mm-hmm. to challenge Jermaine O'Neal. And that's the, that was the other thing. There were so many people involved in this that we didn't even know about because you saw so little of what really happened. But it was wild to see these two fans to this day believe that they didn't do anything wrong. And there are still people defending these fans because they have this, you know, emotional investment in these players. And I think that speaks to the commodification of these athletes where players or fans and, any, you know, folks who call themselves super fans and season ticket holders really believe that because they've spent money to see these folks play, they've spent money for these people to entertain them, they can treat them any way they want. And I think that has serious implications for the way we continue to look at professional sports today, Nate. No, it, it absolutely does. And I, mean, I think the thing that really is striking is the, the fan who threw the beer, he wasn't, I mean, the guy was even asked directly, do you feel badly that like, you know, Artest, got the wrong guy essentially. And he's just kind of like laughing. Like, I just wish I had tripped him, you know, like, and, and the guy's sitting up there and he's like, yeah, the, the personification of that, like insane fanhood culture that is living vicariously through the Detroit Pistons successes and ups and downs, whatever that let's not forget the Pistons are defending NBA champions at this point. Um, this was an extremely intense rivalry. I mean, this like, this was the, the matchup in the Eastern conference finals the year before, um, and the Pistons, you know, narrowly got the got the win in that series and went on to win the NBA Finals against the Lakers. Um, but so that's the backdrop of all this going on here. And so you have all this emotion that's been building up back and forth, you know, kind of jabs, like, you know, metaphorical jabs going back and forth, and in real intense drama between these two teams. And the fans want to believe that they are as much a part of that as the actual players on the court, the coaches coaching the game, the support staff, and all that. That is part of what that's the intoxicant of sports fandom, right? That's like that you can actually escape the day-to-day just drudgery of whatever your life is, or just maybe if your life isn't even <laughs> that bad, just that chance to um, have kind of like an out-of-body experience almost when you go to that game. And there's something about the crowd, right? And I, I even think back to things I've done at games where I, afterwards I look back and I'm like, God, I can't believe I got like so mad or fired up just like about what was going on in the moment. But when you're in the crowd, when you're in uh, the anonymity that comes with being in a large group of people um, that are all kind of like working in the same degree, you know, energy, have the same energy, pulling for the home team, whatever it may be, that then you're able to project all that you hate, all that is bad, all that's wrong with the, in, in your anger in the world onto that opposing team. And it's like that that model is very profitable. It's very profitable. And it's sort of like um, and it draws a lot of people in. You're able to dehumanize the opponent. Very literally. Um, and uh, that, yeah, it is problematic. I mean, let, let's not, be, let's not forget either real quick that David Stern in the NBA here, um, the way this was handled because it was an on the court incident and not something off the court, David Stern had total czar like decision-making ability on this thing. And there wasn't any sort of analysis of it. He didn't go into any detail. He just said the decision was one against zero, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Being he yeah. against nobody. Right. And that's just the way it went down, you know? So 
Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's wild that you also had the fans throwing the chairs. If you look at the situation with them going into the tunnel there, and you just see all the fans coming down and congregating around there, and it was like, that really struck me the imagery of it because you're like, you it's like it's like almost like you're looking at not even zoo animals or something like the way that like the optics of that were set up as if like. They are just like mm-hmm. not even human beings in the minds of these fans at that point. They weren't just like one guy throwing a beer or something. It was like a almost like an organized effort to sit there and just drown them in like disgusting soda, uh, popcorn. Like it's almost like a modern day tar and tarring and feathering mm. sort of like let's make them, you know, and that, that sort of it struck me uh, visually seeing that. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think that's a great an, uh, analogy. And I'm glad you brought up David Stern because what he did was to issue a dress code as if the way these men dressed on the court was the reason that they were physically attacked by all of these fans, which, again, you know, speaks to the racism in the way that the league and the media responded. You know, I think this incident was when I started to dislike Bob Costas and definitely Stephen oh. A. Smith. Um, oh, I, I, I really I put him on, but Bob Costas was the worst. In oh, this. he was the absolute worst. But, you know, in the, in the last couple of minutes, one of the former players in the documentary made a great point where, you know, the, the sports media made all this big deal about the thug mentality in the NBA, making these obvious, you know, racial inferences. But nobody said anything about all the fights that happen all the time in hockey. Now, I don't know how you can miss that clear racial hypocrisy, but the entire sports media did it, Nate. And it still happens mm-hmm. today, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. The, you know, the, the, the response to that from mainstream sports people, are like, well, hockey fighting is part of the game in hockey. Like, well, I mean, this says who, and like, that's like, you know, that's, that is that way because it's been allowed to develop that way for the longest time. I mean, you look back at like how the NBA still profited off of like the image from the eighties and nineties when the game was much more physical than it is now. And, you know, and it, you had the bad boy Pistons, you had a physical brand of basketball where you know, they marketed themselves on that. They like in a lot of ways that like, this is tough, you know, gritty basketball. That's like, uh, it draw drew a lot of fans in. That was the, the that was an era of the league's you know utmost popularity. You look at coming out Magic and Bird going to the right. Jordan, Isaiah Thomas Jordan. So it, it's it's absolutely um, you know something that they've made a lot of money on and capitalized on. And the, the yeah the analogy to hockey is just it's that way because it's that way. And with regards last thing to the dress code, I mean that was put in purely because they wanted they were. Lo- Scared they were going to lose sponsors, lose advertising people. Look at the media reaction. And they thought that like, oh, well, we just make them all wear suits at their press conferences. No one can wear do-rags anymore. Mm. Let's go after the AIs of the world, right? And like, you know, Mm -hmm. stigmatize that and play into it instead of pushing back. And it's just funny because we always hear how woke the NBA owners are in contrast to like the NFL. And I always kind of like just think that's a little overblown because it's like, yeah, I mean, it's not that hard to be you know, a little less reactionary than NFL owners, but it's uh, certainly, I think, overstated and giving too much credit uh, to these NBA owners about how 
what a harmonious relationship they have, you know, as if like there's no labor strife. It's uh, that in the media frames it that way all the time. Yeah, absolutely true. I definitely encourage people to watch the Netflix documentary Malice at the Palace. It's amazing. But with that, we are out of time and we're at the end of the hour. And you were listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Want to thank Nate Wallace so much for joining us. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for John Blackman. And as always, we're your guys to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Greetings and salutations, friends. It is Friday, August the 13th. Ooh. And I am here sitting in for our comrade, Sean Blackman. I am Jackie Lukeman. Sean is taking some much needed time out to enjoy life a bit on vacation. And remember, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls to talk about anything your heart desires. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us on the show. You, our allies, accomplices, and comrades can reach out and touch us here on the show by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. You can listen to us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. You can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And we are happy, very happy to be joined today by Stacey Hopkins, activist, organizer, and political strategist. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? How, I hope everyone is, is trying to find some sort of joy and hold, hold on to this today because, woo, child, it's, it's, it's rough out here. You ain't never lied. I mean, it's, you know it's bad when you can't even think of an, an actual word to describe what is going on other than woo, Lord. Because <laughs> for real, it's it's a mess. I mean, Stacy, you are there in Atlanta, and of course, mm. there's a lot going on electorally in all the states. But but you know, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts about Joe Manchin and the For the People Act and the way he pared that legislation down. To fit his own, of course, it was to fit his own agenda. You know, it was all about money because he and and his Republican allies are mad about the provision in the For the People Act that was going to restructure the Federal Election Commission. And that would have 
cause them to have to abide by election uh, campaign finance rules. But I mean, I'm just wondering your feelings about the For the People Act right now and, and if it passes in September in its current form with what Joe Manchin has done to it, what that means to voting rights and, and you know, organizing and, and in the states. Uh, I was never really a big fan of the For the People Act because it was being promoted as this wonderful, magical panacea that would correct everything that has been done. And it doesn't. And it only applies to the federal elections. Um, Most of the things that we have seen that have gone on that have been so egregious um, has happened on the state level. So for me, you know, and and it was also ironic um, to hear that it would open up democracy when it still keeps power in the hands of two political parties. Mm. So um, I was never really a big fan of it, but, you know, it does have some elements that are that would be beneficial. But we had another solution that has been on the table that Democrats should have picked up and, and ran with, which is the Fair Representative Representation Act that I believe was introduced by Representative Don Beyer. Um, it was and that would actually go and address the problems that we have with representation um, and, and the redistricting process, which a lot of people do not understand. And for black people, it pretty much doesn't matter because we're still screwed. We need a champion, right? Not getting champions out of the Democratic Party. So we're going to fight for you to use our issues as bargaining chips, because that's basically what has been done with the gutting down of the For the People Act. I don't know what they're coming up with. I'm not quite familiar with uh, with the changes that are going on and is going to be reintroduced. And the stalling of what really was the stronger of those two bills, the John Lewis Act, that would have required um, restoring preclearance to um, some of the things that we have seen, particularly here in Georgia. So it's very difficult, you know, watching this. And, and here's the thing, President Manchin, (laughs) I mean, he's running things, right? Everything has to go through Joe Manchin, right? Uh Now we have, so now we have another president who is dictating, who is supposed to be on the home team. This is, this is not supposedly a Republican. This is a Democrat, Democrats who are supposed to protect and defend the vote who are upholding him and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, they are beholden to the, the, that old tool that has prevented voting rights, the uh, um, filibuster. So we have this going on. We, we see that Democrats can't even pass a bill through their own caucus. And once again, we are seeing voting rights undercut in order to get this grand bargain, which seems to be the uh, what this administration wants to see. We heard about how voting rights was going to be number one priority. We heard that when they got when they when they won the White House. Um, we heard all of this uh, magical stuff was going to happen. We're going to get this done. And now we got people falling out at the Capitol and they walking right past them. They go in the Joe's houseboat. 
So, um, I, you know, we'll see what happens, but, um, there are, it's really, really troubling to see because we have a problem. The For the People Act is incomplete. It does not address, it, it gives us a panacea. Independent commissions are great, okay? However, there's a problem. How can you call it an independent commission if it's still two-party dominated? What happens to the other parties who deserve a seat at the table? Whether we like it or not, there are people who vote Green Party. There are people, there are libertarians. You know, there are other parties that deserve a seat at the table. You can't say it's an independent commission while you shut out the rest of the parties. And then there's the, the difficulty that we have seen with independent commissions that have been instituted. How do you keep a commission independent and free of partisan influence. Mm. Humans are fallible. They are susceptible to the seven deadly sins. So what mechanism is it that keeps them independent? Because once you have an independent commission, that does not mean that commission is free of being corrupted by either one of the parties who have used this process for power. And part of the problem is how we vote. Um, um, we currently vote using a lot of states um, have winner take all districts or uh, uh, single member districts. Right. That is part of the problem and helps enable gerrymandered districts to stand. You know, um, we used to have um, we have districts that are so large, a single member is not sufficient to represent the, the rapid changes. And we just saw with the census being released and white people losing their brains over something that we already knew was going to happen. Um, that um, we like here in Georgia, we have a, we're getting ready to approach redistricting. Um, that is going to be a mess because of the past. The GOP is in power here. They control the process. We're already looking at uh, people who are sitting on committees who have a vested interest in protecting their districts and protecting their party's interests. And I'm speaking of the Republicans. So it's going to be uh, this, this whole process and without fixing the totality of the problem, we can't just apply half-baked measures and say, Oh, the problem's solved. It will not be, because I guarantee you, if the For the People Act passes, we will still have a problem with right. proportionate representation. So I challenge Congress to actually sit down and look at the problem, think it out before coming up with this stuff, getting people's heads on fire, which it seems like most people really don't care about the For the People Act because no one can articulate how it will exactly affect what they see that is going on in states. And so there's a big problem with messaging. But in terms of, you know, I sit in the intersection of the political world and black politics, black liberation, because that's my goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be free. Come on now. I mean, th this is, I think, a critical conversation that we need to have that we always need to have about how things work. I mean, and, it, and it's and it's it's good to advocate for people's rights 
to vote, of course. But if if we don't understand, Stacey, exactly what you just said, that how how are we going to fix a system that is still controlled by the two parties and it's basically still controlled by the rich old white men and women now um, who set it up to exclude everyone else? And you, and you mentioned something that I that I want to I want to bring into this conversation, and that is the census. And and I was I was kind of freaked out, honestly, about how little people understand that the census, you know, all this stuff they tell us about the census is used for, you know, distribution of all these hundreds of millions of dollars in federal. Yeah, that that's that's really not true, because if that were true, then there wouldn't be so many poor folks. There wouldn't be so many public schools that are underfunded. There wouldn't be so many. People wouldn't have to be fighting for their quote unquote fair share of federal funds in the states if the census was actually used to distribute those funds. So the reality behind the census, Stacey, is that it is a tool for what you mentioned a few minutes ago, redistricting. And can you break down to people why this is so important, why the census is important in connection? with representation in Congress and voting? The census determines, you know, um, it's in the Constitution that we are mandated every 10 years to take a basically a tally of who lives in the country and where they live at. Um, There's also a side issue that is often not discussed and which has not been disallowed in census rules of the prison gerrymander. That happens in communities where you may live in a, you may have lived in a certain place, you were sentenced in a certain place, you are incarcerated in another state, and your count then goes to where you were incarcerated at versus where you live. Where you are incarcerated at is not your domicile. So when we have this process go go forth, this determines. Who represents you in the House and Senate? Okay, this is how we get these congressional districts. Um, If we have certain changes in population, you will either gain a seat, lose a seat, or stay the same. But they also mandate that you should. There's a certain formula uh, that goes by population, but that does not mandate your representation and keeping communities together, et cetera. So what we have ended up with is this process has been hijacked by the political parties. And we used to do things a lot different. You know, you see these weird districts. I mean, for in Georgia, um, redistricting was done and counties were kept whole. We have one district here, a congressional district. Uh, that has, I believe, six counties in it, and it's in the metro Atlanta area. So imagine running for office and you have to deal with six counties over one. Wow. And so it is very, it's something that electorally people need to understand because if we need, if, if any part, of of the black liberation agenda requires a political solution, then we do need to know what is going on in electoral politics because 
if there's something that we need electorally in order to achieve the liberation that we want, we need to understand it. We ain't got to like it, but we do need to understand it because that is part of the problem. Now, if there's something that we can gain without electoral politics, we need to go for it because this system is so broken and so corrupt. This one bill is not going to fix everything. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, how we are represented and a lot of the the things that we do or the, the things that we don't do in terms of redistricting came in response because of black people getting the vote here in Georgia. You could they could not split up counties until 1964 when they outlawed. Right. That they said, you know, you can just go ahead and do it any way you want in response to the Civil Rights Act. That's the only reason they did that. So we are now trying to fix something that is broken, but we're not going to the point where it has been broken. And that, for me, is a problem. So, um, and it is, I mean, the whole process and how it impacts us. um, I would like to say on funding, though. Mm-hmm. Funding is a matter, but the majority of funding now comes down in block grants. Block grants do not depend on the census for that. Mm, okay. And when we look at when we look at funding for a lot of programs that we need, they come down in the form of block grants. So yes, funding is important. It's a it's an important part. But if we are concerned with that, we need to look at how block grants are distributed versus the. Uh, and I don't want to discount the importance of getting state funded, state funding because of that. But in terms of the programs that we want to see beefed up, they are funded through block grants, which is kind of a runaround from that. Mm, mm. See, this is why I love having you on the show and having this conversation about voting with you, Stacy, because you discuss voting in First of all, liberatory in a liberatory framework as a part of the strategy of black liberation. And you also talk about it in terms of what the system is, why it doesn't work and why, if we're serious about liberation, we have to be clear about the ways in which there you go. Y'all take a sip that we folks, we who believe in liberation can and have to use the electoral process to gain some of the things we can, but also to continue to work outside of the process to gain those things that voting is not going to get us. So, I mean, I really appreciate it. And I got to tell you, the the chat, the YouTube chat, they're on fire because they love listening to the way you are having this conversation, too. So we will definitely pick up on this because there are a couple of things I want to get to, but we're going to go into our first break for the hour, but we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupmon, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are now open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. We continue to be joined by Stacy Hopkins. And I got to say, shout out in the booth to Phil, our replacement stand-in sound engineer, filling in for our regular engineer who is also on vacation. Uh, Ryan, y'all, take a vacation. Take care of yourselves. Take some time off. Don't let this system kill you. Anyway, look, we've got a caller on the line. Tarif Simon, tell us what's on your mind. A lot is on my mind. I want to go over a lot, but I only can deal with one comment because I only got, you know, so much time. First of all, first of all, I'd like to say free drawing signs, free dangles are in hands off hay. Please hands off hay. Okay, here I go. New Orleans, I found out yesterday my home city where I'm from, New Orleans, is going to be imping, um, in, um imposing on businesses throughout the city um, vaccine passports. So what that means is we're going, uh, New Orleans survives off of tourism. And we know New Orleans is part of the South, Louisiana, right? It's part of the South. And what's going to happen, like what happened last year in 2020, when you had business going under here, especially, you know, black businesses and other businesses, right? You're going to have the poverty is going to get worse down here now. Because now, when people come from out of town, they realize they can't eat without a vaccine passport. And those that believe in freedom of choice, where either you go with the vaccine or not, they're not going to patronize these businesses in New Orleans. <laughs> what happens, they're going to um, start. So what's going to happen? They're going to start laying off people down here in the um, tourism industry, the hotel workers, the, um, the um, people that work in the restaurants. They're going to start laying them off and cutting the hours. And now... Unemployment, from what I understand, just ran out this month, the beginning of this month. So what people's going to do? Things are going to get worse. Property um, uh, owners, they're going to lose their um, businesses, their, um, their little restaurants, their little ballrooms. And, they, and, and they're going to go on bankruptcy. And what BlackRock and the other um, large speculators going to do to um, these companies, they're going to come in and start buying up different parts of New Orleans. Because people won't be able to afford to pay the mortgages on the restaurants anymore because they're going to see clientele go down. And all the people that are going to go into those restaurants and barrooms is going to be people that have been vaccinated and also have the vaccine passport. Not everybody on board with the vaccine passport. So this city is going to suffer even more, just like. Other cities that's going to pass it, and um, you're going to see a lot of people going out of business and poverty going to increase, homelessness, God forbid that, and also crime going to um, increase. Um, that's all I want to say. Thank you so much, Tarif, for your call. We really appreciate you. Hope that you call back again soon. This, this is always a, one of those touchy conversations. I don't agree with the vaccine passport idea. It sounds too much to me like show me your papers. I don't I don't like it. I think it's counterproductive. I think it's ridiculous. But I also think that when we focus on this part of this whole situation, Stacey, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this caller's comments. I also think when we start focusing on the end result of the system not doing anything for people to support themselves and survive in this pandemic, all we're doing is kind of perpetuating the same kind of response 
that we don't want. We're, we're focusing on, you know, oh, if if people don't come to a city that survives on tourism because they don't want to show a vaccine passport, uh, then they're not going to come and people are going to lose their jobs and people aren't going to pay their rent and the property owners and, you know, but really the conversation needed to have been and still needs to be and still needs to be forever and ever until it changes that the system needs to take care. People need to be taken care of. And we wouldn't be in this situation if this system and the people that prop it up had said, hey, there is a pandemic. It is global. There is a virus floating around here that is making people sick and it is killing people instead of finding a way to make people go back to work so we can continue to prop up businesses. How about Let's make sure people can stay home, pay their rent, pay their bills, feed themselves, get their medications so that people can get well faster so that we can stop the spread of this virus that's making people sick and killing people. And then we can get back to, quote unquote, business as usual faster. But that's my take on the situation. Stacey, what what are your thoughts on on the caller's comments? Okay. (laughs) Now. The first thing I would say is I'm not particularly against vaccine passports because we don't have a problem whipping out our driver's license when asked. Okay, so point. And for me, for me, I I, and full disclosure, I'm fully vaccinated. But that was a personal choice because at first I didn't want to take the vaccine because of and I'm not mad at anyone who still refuses to take it because of the historical nature of how black people have been exploited and and killed by the medical community. This was this whole thing of people being resistant to the vaccine lays at the hands of big pharma. I mean, you watch TV commercials and you see that death and coma is now a side effect Hmm. uh, or other medications. So there is a there is a good reason to be wary. I'm not mad at anybody who doesn't wish to take it, but I do ask that if you do not wish to take it, wear a mask because I had two grandchildren who had COVID. Thankfully, they survived. I had three friends who died because of it in one month. I have seen this ravage the black community and it is a, the failure goes back for decades. Had we had the mechanisms to deliver the vaccines to people, such as I live in Atlanta. We used to have community health centers all over the city. I remember that. They are now, they are gone Mm. because of the Republicans' war on public service and cutting the austerity cuts. We were left without the mechanisms to deliver this. And this whole crisis was bungled badly. And as you pointed out, the the main impetus in all this was not for the safety and health of people. It was to get the economy back. This was to continue to feed the capitalism beast. So, you know, it is a it is it's it's a really, really tricky topic because I can understand and I was just downtown talking with a business owner there was a there's a popular strip, um, Broad Street, that had restaurants. And I went down there and my jaw dropped. Half of the businesses are gone and they are being replaced with higher end 
you know, these were my my ten dollar or less eat spots. So right, right. Some places I can eat for five dollars, right? Because I'm a ball on the budget, y'all. But, um, <laughs> Aren't we all? You know. But I was talking to one of the shop owners, and he said the rent has risen so high that he can't afford it. But who can afford it? These high-end restaurants that depend on black and brown bodies to serve. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, it's really, really crazy to see the response. You know, they wanted to open up. You know, we're open for business. We opened up for business here in Georgia, and right now I'm still in my house acting like it was last year because the the rates have exploded. And now, you know, I I always knew when I got the vaccine that there was a chance I could get the 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 virus. The good thing about this is that my chances of dying is very slim to nil. But I ain't trying to be sick, period. And I would like people to stay six feet away from me, even when this is over. Um, I was like that before it happened. <laughs> right. Back up. I'm going to make a shirt. Back the F up. So um, it, it's really, you know, to see that the response to this was not for human health. And let's talk about the small businesses. We saw those PPP loans go out the door. That's true. No money in three weeks. And now I'm watching uh, this house, this eviction stay. It is not a moratorium. It is just a stay. I'm watching people struggling and waiting to get money dispersed who are in danger of being thrown out of their houses. And then with the PPP loans, we saw people who had no business getting them. Get them and get big money while small businesses had to beg, borrow, you know, hat in hand, can I have some money? So it's really difficult. And for those businesses um, who are who are trying and they had to, you know, it's adapt or die. You know, you ha if you're running a restaurant, you would have to, it would be better to switch to a takeout or, uh, or, or a, uh, even though you make more money when people sit in and drink and all that, I get that. But however, do you want sick customers, sick and dead customers don't tend to buy a lot of stuff. I so I get the need of that. But they, once again, we saw big business taken care of and the coffers were open. And for those who were struggling, we were left here and they gave us our, their behinds for us to kiss. And you know what? That That is a great point. Now, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the vaccine passport and Ricky Ryan and, and Big Teal and a few other folks in the chat, shout out to the chat, the YouTube chat for our show are making the great point that the vaccine passport, I think, and I agree with them, would be used as another way to criminalize folks. Right. And, you know, the driver's license, you're not required to show your driver's license everywhere you go all the time, like to go in a restaurant. Now, if you want to buy alcohol, yes, you are. Usually, I mean, I have to show my driver's license in the grocery store, my neighborhood grocery store. They know me, but they do it anyway when I buy, you know, a bottle of wine. So, you know, but but the point that, again, this system took care of and it, and it, and it wasn't I, I, I would like to stop framing it as like big corporations stole PPE money. No, they didn't. They took advantage of the system exactly as the way the system was designed to work. And it was designed to work for them. 
So all of that money that was supposed to go to these corporations to not lay people off, they just took it, put that joint in their pocket, and then lay people off anyway. We did. We saw that with the travel industry, with the airlines, with the, you know, and then these small businesses in this society in which, you know, the, the politicians say is exceptional because capitalism equalizes the playing field and everyone has an opportunity. Well, those folks who had small businesses who were trying to participate in this capitalist opportunity, they got shorted. So so I, I mean, I think at the at the end of the day, we see this again, Stacey, going to the fact that this system is not designed to support anyone who's not already rich. And we know that most of those folks are not most of us. But you brought up the point of the eviction moratorium. And I definitely want to hit on that, Stacey, because the federal judge just ruled a few hours ago that the Biden administration's revised eviction moratorium will remain in place because, you know, the landlords and the property owners, they sued as soon as the new eviction moratorium, serious problems that it does have, was announced. But they also acknowledged the uh, federal court here in D.C. acknowledged that the moratorium itself faces an uncertain legal future. Uh, Judge Friedrich said that her hands were tied because of an existing order by an appellate court allowing the moratorium to continue. So it sounds to me, Stacey, like the court is like, man, if that existing moratorium wasn't there, we would have ended this foolishness a minute ago. And I I just I'm really wondering when people are going to just get angry enough really to take to the streets and, you know, but I, I've pontificated enough. What, what are your thoughts on, on, on this? Uh, first, um, before I forget, on capitalism, if you think capitalism promotes or is, is equality is not coded in the DNA of capitalism system. And if you don't believe me, just break out a game of Monopoly and play it. Mm. I mean, that, that's that. Um, mm, that's the church fam right there. Mm. I mean, it's encoded in its DNA to produce inequality. So when we say we try to get equality in the capitalist system, I, my brain goes berserk. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see how you do that. But however, um, we also, you know, in the black community, we good for telling you, go get your bag and get your paper. Get your paper up. Everybody was, Rihanna's a billionaire. You ain't. So, yay, Rihanna. And I love Riri. I love you. I do. And big ups, but, you know. Okay, so, but in terms of the eviction moratorium, uh, or stay, I should say, it's not a moratorium. As we are seeing, I'm watching, as a matter of fact, I'm looking out my window right now. The sheriff is here again. Mm. There are people who got caught up in the system. This whole, this whole uh, stay that was created and the program that is supposed to help uh, renters and landlords, because I don't understand landlords 
who are not responding to help keep tenants in, that we got landlords who are getting the money and putting people out anyway for other lease violations. They, they, there's a workaround around that. They're, either the lease is expiring or they're coming up with penny ante stuff. You know, if the police come to your house too many times, they put you out. They're finding all little workarounds. They don't want these people to remain in their complexes or in their domiciles because the market is so hot in terms of renting and buying homes, they can pick and choose. And there are some who this whole pandemic, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. How do you come up during a pandemic? You know, so we've got people flush with cash who who were doing well before the pandemic and it didn't affect them one iota who are out here picking it. They want to live and it is mind boggling. I mean, I get calls and people coming to me because the agencies who are supposed to be helping them and who are supposed to be and their political representatives who, are, who should be taking these calls, they're not taking them. They're coming to me. They're coming to people like me who have to try and navigate this to help these people. Why do I do it? Because I love them. Period. Period. I don't get paid for this. I do it because I love them. And we have a, we have a severe uh, drain on... We have a deficit on empathy in this country. We have a deficit of, of caring for one another. We have an intellectual deficit. And all of this is conflated into this gigantic mess that people are stuck. And, you know, this is personal for me because I got caught up in this. And I was trying to sound the alarms back in, when all this went down with me in October of last year. You know, and right. listen, my husband works at the post office. He got a good job. And it was tough for us. I was in tears. First, I was trying to buy a house. I was getting outbidded before I would go in, look at a house, walk out, call my agent. And she's like, there's 10 other offers. Mm. And I couldn't compete with that. Plus, I was trying to use, um, uh, trying to go FHA or VA. And they don't. When they got somebody coming up, I got cash money. I don't want no inspection. I can move in tomorrow. People are going for that. And that created another rush in the rental market. And so now we're going to have people who will end up with pockets full of money, with an eviction on their record, with nowhere to go because there's no public housing. We tore them all down over the quote unquote live work play where the only thing you can do is work there. Can't live or play there because you can't afford it. And um, there's nowhere for the people to go. We already have shelters and extended stays, which are very expensive. That will eat up that money real quick. Where are these people going to go? So right. we had a flawed process implemented by flawed individuals, and we keep doing a stay but no one is working on how to figure out how to make this work out better because this is going to be horrible. And in the middle of a pandemic, we are going to have black and brown bodies out here with no shelter. 
this is this has been terrible. But my heart goes out to that judge. She's in quite a pickle. Mm. Mm. Um, she needs to throw it back. Congress and the state legislature and tell them fix the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, and I love, Stacey, that you said that. You know, you do what you do because you love the people. You don't get paid for this. Fred Hampton said, I live for the people. I'm going to live for the people because I love the people. And I believe that you can't fight for the people if you do not love the people. But with that, we're going to move to our last break of the hour. But we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Phone lines are still open and we are still joined by Stacey Hopkins. Stacey, not only has a federal judge stayed the ending of the moratorium, but, you know, I really want to go back into this discussion about the census because you just talked about black and brown bodies being in the streets. And, and that is exactly what's going to happen, folks. Please don't think that's like uh, hyperbole. I think that's the way that word is pronounced. I never get it right, but I hope I got it right that time. Nobody's exaggerating here when, when we're talking about the people who are the most impacted by these evictions. But there's an interesting phenomenon with the census. And, and, and I want to point out also really quickly in the chat, one of our friends, Deho, uh, let us know that the New York Supreme Court blocked a part of New York's eviction moratorium just this afternoon. So this thing is about to get much more serious and much more awful than it already is. But when we're talking about Black and brown bodies impacting politics and policy. I think the census results prove interesting in another kind of way in regard to how black and brown folks are are impacting politics, because according to the latest census, the thing that you mentioned earlier that, you know, white folks are are terrified. Well, OK, most white folks in this country are terrified is going to happen that, you know, the white population in this country is declining in the majority. The young, diverse population is increasing. And in places like Texas, where the state has picked up two additional seats in the House because of the census, and that is a result of the increase in the population, particularly of Latinx people, but Texas is a red state. How do we frame this conversation, Stacey, about black and brown people impacting politics at the state level and making the what I think is the incorrect assessment that uh, especially Latinx people are more conservative and that's why our Republicans have more control in states like Texas 
when what we're looking at really is like the numerical result of the census giving the party that's already in power in the state of Texas and other red states like it, being able to benefit off of the census to gain more power or hold on to it. How do, how do we frame that discussion and not demonize folks who are not necessarily conservative? They're just, their population is just increasing and the conservatives have figured out a way to use their population uh, increase both as a political talking point to scare white people to keep voting for Republicans and also as a political tool for them to stay in power. Deployed since forever. I mean, that's really nothing about this is new except the time that it's occurring in. This is all history repeating itself. We saw this backlash during Reconstruct, after Reconstruction, you know, but for those, you know, and we always knew that the 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 racial uh, makeup of America would turn. Um, and we we did know, or some of us knew, that black people were no longer going to be the bell of the ball anymore, and that black Latinx voters were going to be the ones who would have the the political power. They are growing; their political power is growing. But I challenge out of those two seats that Texas picks up, mm-hmm. if you have. Latinx voters who are powering this, see if if they get a Latinx representative out of them two seats. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So how do we fix this? I'm going to be honest. You got me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have to respect the GOP's gangster. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Um, we know how to burn the bridges and kick the bridges once they kick the the ladders once they cross it. They've done a damn good job of doing that. And so, how do we fix this? Well, one thing I do know: we need real champions. But you can't have real champions. And 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 I speak of the Democratic Party because we basically have a two party system here. Right. Right. We can't break the break it when. We see Democrats who enable and uphold this system and say and do nothing or give us ineffective or lackluster responses to it. They don't want to get rid of this. They really don't. Do you really think if they wanted to get rid of voter suppression, why haven't they? Because it's a good get out the vote driver thing. And they're making a lot of money off of it. Why would I fix something I'm making money off of? How much money have we spent on this? And we've got nothing to show for it. No return. And that should be one of the things that people are upset about. All this money is being spent and we're getting no returns for it. Hmm. Uh, So how do we fix it? I really have to, I'm going to be honest. I'd have to put some thought on that because right now, to me, you right now it's so dysfunctional and so broken. You don't have to burn it down and rebuild it. Mm. Broke. Mm. It's broke. Mm. It it pains me to say this, but I really don't see any other way. If things keep going the way it goes, you know, I close my eyes at night and I see blood in the streets. 
because people's backs are up against a wall. And I don't want to see it. I don't want to wish it. I, you know, nonviolence, I'm all for it. But we see violence perpetuated upon us daily. It's just not physical violence. It's done with the stroke of a paper and a pen. Mm -hmm. And the biggest organized crime syndicate is our government on the federal and state level. How, so I, I really, I, I'm at a loss to say, how do we fix this electorally? We can't fix it, not with this, not with this group we have. So, you know, that's really a difficult, I'm going to be honest, because that's all I can be. I really don't know how to answer that particular question at this time. And, you know, I appreciate that, Stacey. I really do, because... Too often we radicals and, and I think in a way and I know people will be freaked out when I say this in a way we, we can get sort of like Christians sometimes like we don't like to admit that we don't have all the answers sometimes. <laughs> right. Sometimes we don't like to admit that. You know what? I I don't have an answer for that one, but I just happen to be reading George Jackson's blood in my eye. I, I try to go back and read it every few years. It's not a big book. It's it's an easy read, but it's also very difficult because it says some things. George says some things in that book that are uncomfortable to us because we are conditioned in this country to be, quote unquote, nonviolent. Right. In the most violent country in the world. You feel me? We're the ones who are conditioned to to just worship at the altar of nonviolence. And we conflate because we've been conditioned to conflate, quote unquote, violence in in the context of our survival with self-defense. And George Jackson in Blood in My Eye explains so incredibly clearly that, number one, the only thing that we that is going to change this system is revolution. That's it. That is it. Now, we, we can we can do we can, you know, do some things on the local level and, and, and to deal with some of these institutions. But we have to operate communally. We have to operate as a community. We have to develop some, even if they're rudimentary uh, infrastructure operations to support our people and our needs, literally feeding providing medicine, that kind of thing for our people. But we also have to be comfortable with the fact that we are not going to get what we need from this system that suppresses us with violence that got what it has and created itself to the point that it is with violence without some serious self-defense. And you know, Stacey, I, I'm wondering how you are feeling about how we convey that truth to folks who are still very, very committed to making change through electoral politics. And I'm, I'm not I'm not going to, you know, down folks who are still there. But but how do you convey that to folks who are still are very much committed to the message of folks like Uncle James Clyburn, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus, who do nothing for us but keep telling us to just vote, vote, vote. H how do you get to people who are still committed to 
you know, the voter die mentality when really what we need to do is fight. How, how do you get how do you reach people like that? Who? You know, you just giving me all of this today. <laughs> oh, and I kind of sit in the inter- I sit in the intersection of a lot of things. That's another area I sit in. And I mean, I was born into violence. Okay? Mm. Born in 1963, one of the most violent years and grew up seeing violence. So I did not. And I put this on Twitter the other day. I I didn't choose violence. Violence chose me. Come on now. OK, so. Um, I think those who believe in and we have sort of a legacy and of of we got that one win, that one win black people got with the Civil Rights Act. Right. That came about a different era and a different time with a different kind of white folks we were dealing with. These are new level ones. While electoral politics is a part of it. It is not the end all be all. And we tend to have an either or mentality when we address things. It has to be either A or B. It has to be a combination of both, but we can't do it. Those who like Uncle Uncle James, <laughs> who uh, my mother, my family hails from his district. Mm. And I went back there uh, a few years ago, about two years ago, and my jaw dropped. When I saw the the conditions of that district from when I was a little girl to me being almost a 60-year-old woman and saying, you've been sitting over here lording over this district and look at it. If my mother and grandmother were here to look at it, they, they'd slap him. Mm. They would slap him. Um, so the problem is that we have those who get into electoral politics and they get sucked into the whole party thing. They're working for the party. They're not working for people. And there is a big difference in that. Political parties keep people in line through fealty. People, there are those who get sucked in and then they get dazzled. And it, it, it's a heating mix. It, it really is. Power. Or the illusion, they give you the illusion of proximity to power, but your job is there to just shepherd the other Negroes to do what you want them to do. And they keep that through money and, and disposing of titles. And, but they don't actually do anything but serve the party. So we need, and we have new people coming into the system who are being taught this, by the same old folks, which is perpetuating the problem. So we need new types of leaders, and this ain't for everybody. We need new people to get engaged, those who can, who can stomach it, and those who can maintain their integrity to get involved in the electoral pro- process and force changing it, but that will be incremental change. We're seeing this going on right now with, with the with progressives being angry because, um, you know, members of the squad are not doing what they want them to do. I think a lot of people think you get elected, you just saunter into the chambers waving, I have a bill, (laughs) and it gets passed. That's not how it works, and it does not work in this dysfunctional system. We're acting like we have a system that is operating nominally. All we need is to put these people in here 
and they will automatically fix it. It is not. And that is why we need more advocacy on fixing the problems, you know, ranked choice voting. Right. um, In terms of how we vote, ranked choice voting, we saw how beautifully it worked in other cities, even though I did not care for the outcome in New York. It worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is one of the things that will help do that. But who's going to give it give it to us? Well, we all know, like you said earlier, the master's tools are not going to be given to us to uh, dismantle the master's house. But you know what? We are out of time with this show today and we're out of time for the week. But we want to thank Stacey Hopkins so much for joining us. And we'll be back with a whole new slate of shows next week. This is Jackie Lukeman, hoping that you have a great weekend. See you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.